I have to give credit to Flash for a getting over his existential crisis after finding <laughs> finding out Peter is Spider-Man. <laughs> and two, writing a book and publishing it that fast. I'll tell you this, he's no Neville Longbottom. That's for sure. <laughs> Welcome to the Marvelous Madams Podcast. We're your hosts, Madam Chris. And I'm Madam Amy. We are burdened with the glorious purpose of talking all things Marvel. Madams, assemble. I feel like Rafiki today, like something out of The Lion King. It is time. Indeed, this has been an episode that we have been looking forward to, to record. Yes, since uh, Spider-Man No Way Home came out in December. So some of you may have heard my solo first thoughts episode, which seems like a lifetime ago now. And I've got some important hindsight now that has changed things a little bit. Yeah, I saw this last month, I think. Yeah, it was a little late, late to the party. Yeah, I went, you know, when it was relatively safe and I saw it in the theater and it was a fantastic experience. I had those premium seats and all it was amazing. Yes, I was there opening night uh, with my husband. So I got to really enjoy that theater experience. And I had an amazing audience who were laughing, crying and peeing their pants all at the exact right times. And everyone was super (laughs) respectful. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to my first thoughts app, maybe go back and check that out, compare the two. And we also want to mention up top that we do have to really round this out. We have a full series of episodes with a few great guests on the Raimi trilogy and two episodes on uh, Mr. Garfield's Spider-Verse as well. Yes, it was my amazing return. (laughs) Amy, Amy, (laughs) you are amazing. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, one of the greatest reactions ever in the movie. I love it. This movie is possibly the greatest fan service bonanza I've ever seen because of the way it's done. Yes, it is incredible the way they've taken all the other Spider-Man movies and just elevated them. It's amazing. I'm gobsmacked. Yes. So guys, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, do so now. So it'll make it easier to find all these old episodes in our archive. Yep. So yeah, few general things here before we really dive into it. Amy's already said it, you know, huge credit to the writers and John Watts for the major reconstructive surgery they did on <laughs> these former characters. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. And not only plot wise, but even visually, physically. Especially with Electro. Hello, Jamie Fox. How you doing? Good to see the real <laughs> you, sir. All of you. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and it's good that you don't look like a glowfish. Yeah, always nice. And, you know, this script is full of so much subtlety that really adds to the characters, especially May. And I'm going to point out a lot of those moments. You know what? Fuck her. F- fuck Marissa Tomei. What? You know, to hell with her. You you spoiled the whole movie for me, which I'm not complaining about. You hold asked on, me hold to. On, hold on. Yes, I'm not complaining about. I said that. You told me everything that happened, all the major plot points. 
So I knew when I went for the movie that she's going to die. And I was waiting for it. I had prepared myself for it. <laughs> and then it happened. And she was so good. Both of them were so good. I was fucking crying. I, my, I was bawling my eyes out. I couldn't see what was happening for the next 15 minutes because my, my eyes were so blurry and teary. Yeah. For me- so fuck her. She's too good. I can't handle her. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Uh, Marissa Tomei, Tom Holland, and Willem Dafoe were the standouts for me in terms of performance. Absolutely, yes. Well, Andrew Garfield was fantastic too. He suddenly became so lovable as Peter Parker. And the movie is full of themes that are very well executed as well. The chemistry amongst this whole cast is incredible. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. You believe that they are really friends. Absolutely. And the aesthetics, it doesn't get better than this. Yeah, yeah. The effects, especially the way Doctor Strange effects are blended into the Spider-Man world. Yeah, and not only that, they even brought in some of the amazing Spider-Man funky CGI. You're right. Especially when MJ is falling, it's very reminiscent to when Gwen fucking dies. <laughs> yeah, that's going to come up. <laughs> FYI, everybody. Uh huh. <laughs> and these fight sequences are incredible, combined with this absolutely towering score. Man, what an experience. Mm hmm. Yes. This is one of those movies where you get sad that you'll never see it again for the first time. Like Endgame. Yeah, it is an experience when you watch it for the first time. You go through the roller coaster of emotions. But it's not bad to see it again and again and again. Absolutely. And again. <laughs> yeah, I'm up to four <laughs> times now. Okay, good. I'm at two right now. I don't want to spoil myself. So because we are who we are, we are going to mention the one big problem with the movie that Amy brought to my attention afterwards because i hadn't given it a thought and we'll talk about what that is and why so thank you amy must i <laughs> yes let's just say it's implied <laughs> i like to hear the words <laughs> <laughs> okay so normally with our overview episodes like this, because God knows everybody, if we go blow, blow by blow, we're going to be sitting here for six hours and you're going to fall asleep. So. Yeah. And there is a lot of action happening. There's a lot of CGI. We can't go through it bit by bit by bit. It'll, it'll be too much. It'll, we will start repeating ourselves that it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's amazing. Yeah. So normally we start out by talking about the casting within the film. But seeing as this is the third movie of a trilogy, not really necessary. Yes, and also a lot of the new characters are technically old characters, and we have already discussed them in the previous episodes, so it doesn't make sense for us to repeat that. Right, so what we're going to do instead is discuss and mostly give great thanks for those who do not appear <laughs> in this movie. Yes, I am unhappy about some people not returning but i'm very glad that the others who did not return did not return yes and at the very top of that list james franco good riddance buddy 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, they had a choice. They could have gone with Dane DeHaan or James Franco, but neither of them can even hold a candle to Willem Dafoe. No. And there would have been no point in bringing back either of them for one of the Peters. You can only stuff this movie so much. Watts got the balance just right. Perfectly balanced, as all things should be. (laughs) Yeah, they essentially got one bad guy from all the movies. And Willem Dafoe was the obvious choice. Yes. And thanks, sweet baby Jesus and his golden fleece diapers. No (laughs) Uncle Ben. I think you would have left the theater and found the tallest building and jumped off from there if Uncle Ben would have arrived. I swear to God, I was just about to say, if I saw Cliff Robertson's face in this movie, I would have left. I would have walked right out of that fucking theater. (laughs) Yeah, no Uncle Ben's from any version. And no Rhino. No, thank you, Mr. Giamatti. You are not always welcome. (laughs) You know, that actually would have been interesting to see how they would have improved on his character, considering how bad he was in the original. I would have preferred them to just mock him if they had brought him back in some way. Yeah, so make him look like the doofus that he turned out to be. You know, acknowledge it. Yeah. It would have been interesting. I'm good. (laughs) And I have never been so grateful to not see Topher Grace's face. Yeah, again, they had a choice between which Eddie Brock to bring in. They went with the better choice. Comparatively. Yeah, it's a low bar. (laughs) Well, it is, but I think Tom Hardy has done a better job and and he's more of a fleshed out character compared to Topher Grace's Eddie Brock. Yeah, well, if anybody can tell me what the hell accent he's trying to do in those movies, let us know at Marvel Madams on Twitter and Instagram, please. (laughs) I'd love to know. (laughs) So now let's talk about Mary Jane Watson and Gwen Stacy. Yes. I'll be honest. When I first saw this movie, I didn't think about either of them at all. I was so blown away by what I was seeing that I didn't think about what I didn't, especially Mary Jane, because she was just such a nothing character. The only time I thought about Gwen was when Andrew Garfield saves RMJ. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed not to see the women again, because as per the logic of the movie, all the people that know Peter Parker were coming in. So these women obviously knew him very well probably better than anyone else and yet they're not there and all these other bad guys they all died and they came here at the moment of their death they're still in that position so Gwen Stacy being dead makes sense for her to come I can't say anything about Mary Jane but I was disappointed not to see the women well I think you're right about Gwen it would have made sense in terms of the plot to bring her back she could have had an actual role to play with all the science, because Mm -hmm. she's an actual character. Yes, by comparison, Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy is a human being. Mary Jane is a caricature. Yeah, and they also could have found a way maybe to retcon Gwen's death, which sorely needed to be done. Yes. Somebody's still a little salty. Absolutely. (laughs) A little? (laughs) Seriously? After all that they put us through. Seriously? Yep. 
I know. I'm finding myself pretty pissed that they didn't do it. But my feelings about Mary Jane are much more complicated. So we do hear about her in the movie. Toby Maguire says, and we're just going to call them by the names of their actors or else this episode's going to get really confusing. Yes. Yes. I'm already struggling with the names. So Toby Maguire tells Tom Holland that he and Mary Jane worked things out. And man, did I see red at that one. You know, I'm not too pissed off about that because he says it took a while and then they worked it out. And later on in the movie, he also speaks about how he had a hard time getting away from his darkness. But he, again, worked through it and came back to a more neutral position, should we say. And the way he speaks, it feels like he has been getting some help. And it's a nice way for them to acknowledge that the Raimi trilogy was not the most healthiest in showing us relationships. Definitely not. So you get super incensed about Gwen. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way about Mary Jane and that whole relationship. And I, you know, go into detail on that in our Raimi trilogy episode, so I won't rehash it. Right. It was just such a horribly toxic relationship. I don't think they should have ever been together. And the fact that you know, we only see it from Toby Maguire's point of view is irritating too. I was having a very hard time separating my feelings about Mary Jane from Kirsten Dunst herself, like conflating the two. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not fair to her. Yeah. But my problem with Mary Jane was twofold. It wasn't just poor representation. It was the fact that she was a terrible human being. So the only way I would have wanted to see Mary Jane return is if she had, you know, like a tightly written monologue like Toby Maguire gets, that she was making poor choices and being a shitty person. So she finally got help and, you know, dealt with her childhood abuse, became a decent person, and is now in a healthy relationship with anybody else. But this would never be allowed. And obviously wasn't allowed. And the fact that this isn't allowed is a larger problem. Because, you know, they're making fun of other things and retconning stuff like the webs, Peter's existential crisis, and the fact that they didn't fix such a huge real world problem for the quote unquote female lead of the previous trilogy, it's kind of a slap in the face to women. It certainly is a slap in the face to women, but, and I 100% agree with you that Mary Jane and Toby Maguire's Peter their relationship was incredibly toxic and they should not be together. But acknowledging that would be akin to opening a can of worms. Because for that era, for that time, and that kind of a relationship shown in media is not unusual. And we also have to keep in mind that, yeah, that's right. Sam Raimi's directing the giant movie that comes out in a month. Yeah, I'm a bit worried. We're not scared. No, we're fine. <laughs> We're not stress eating about it or, you know, mm -hmm. running to the bathroom because of it. No, we're fine. And I'm watching Xena and he is the executive producer of that show. Yeah. And if anyone has seen Xena, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yep. Yep. Elizabeth Olsen, save us, please. <laughs> we're counting on you, honey. It's all on your shoulders. This will require some Westview levels of magic. <laughs> And coming back to Mary Jane, before No Way Home was released, there was a lot of speculation. Clearly, we know about that. People were going a bit crazy 
about who's in the movie and who isn't in the movie. And naturally, a couple of people asked Kristen Dunst if she was going to be in the movie. And she specifically said that, no, she isn't. Nobody asked her. And she kind of, in a rather salty way, said that, can't get an old girl in there, you know? Now, I take issue with that statement from her because May, Marissa Tomei's Aunt May, is portrayed so well for a woman of her age. So I'm sorry, Kirsten, I can't get behind you on that one. Yes, but we don't know how aware she is of these Spider-Man movies. And considering the way she was treated in the trilogy, she has a right to be a bit salty. We don't know what happened even behind the scenes, how people treated her. In the movie, they treated her so shittily as the damsel in distress. Plus, her character was horrible. We don't know what happened on set, how they treated her. Right. And, you know, that that's a conversation someday down the road. I would love to have with John Watts. You're listening, Marvel. (laughs) We'd love to anytime. Just give us a call. Uh Sure. Yeah. Yeah, please. I feel like there's going to be one of those like e-true Hollywood stories in 20 years where we're going to find out all of that, you know? Sure. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised and I'm looking forward to it. Yes, and we will discuss that on season 57 of the podcast. (laughs) When Amy and I are living next door to each other in the same retirement community. (laughs) Yes, true. Indeed, we will both be walking with our walking sticks and going, you know, in my day. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving on to our villains. I don't think I've ever enjoyed villains so much in a movie yes i know you had a complaint when it comes to the old spider-man movies of having too many villains in this case we have many villains but they're all fantastic yes that's what i'm saying there were so many ways for this movie to go wrong Mm -hmm. and at every turn it seems like watts had just the right amount of restraint and the writers had just the right amount of reverence for you know those that came before the banter between these villains and the kids with the kids showing so much deference it's just absolute gold <laughs> yes it is this movie reminded me a lot of those books that we read as kids where kids go on adventures and the parents are just telling the kids to shut up and sit down but they don't and they go have these wonderful adventures, it feels a lot like this. This could have been a kid's movie, but it's also a movie that we as adults can enjoy, and there's a lot of nuance to it. Yeah. So starting off with uh, Sandman and Lizard, or Dr. Connors here and Flint Marco, nothing really here uh, to discuss. The nice thing is that we actually have consistency with Sandman's physical form. Yeah, and I find it interesting that both with Sandman and with Connors, they decide to keep them CGI all the time, which certainly added to the budget. Mm -hmm. They could have made them human at some point because in Spider-Man 3, Sandman did, you know, shift between sand and flesh, while Connors also did shift between lizard and human. Yes. Sandman has more to say in his first 30 seconds on screen in No Way Home than in all of Spider-Man 3. 
Yes, I agree. And even at the end, when he finally does become his human form, he seems more like a human being and less like a plastic doll who's walking around. Soccer coach Ken? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Soccer coach old Ken. So like soccer coach grandpa Ken. There you go. (laughs) He gives the kids popsicles after the game is over. Mm -hmm. Laced with sand. And now we come to Electro, a.k.a. Max Dillon. And Jamie Foxx getting to play an appropriate role. How? The comedy. It works. He is hilarious in this movie. Yes. Compared to Amazing Spider-Man 2, yes, he is funny. He's less of an angry black man. Are these your Legos? (laughs) I don't blame him for being a little nervous about his procedure when, uh, you know, his scientist is, is still making Star Wars figurines. Yes. And his assistant is an octopus. Yes. And, you know, the rationale here for his glow up is like thin to non-existent. I don't care. Yeah, it works. It makes sense. Can you imagine how bad it would look for him to be a glowfish throughout the movie? (laughs) Yeah, he needed a total overhaul and got it. They couldn't recast the part because that would negate the premise of the movie. So they had to fix the character. Yes. And they did a good job with it. And at the end of the movie, they even gave him somewhat of a costume. Yes. And I will never say no to a shirtless Jamie Foxx. 54 years old, my ass. (laughs) Yeah, he looks amazing. I don't believe he's 54. Moving on now to Doc Ock, a.k.a. Otto Octavius. Yes, that's his real name, kids. This is kind of reminiscent of when Peter met Doctor Strange for the first time. Yes. Oh, we're using a made up name. <laughs> <laughs> so we first meet Doc Ock on the bridge. And oh my God, I just love Tom Holland so much. Him in this suit running around on the bridge was so Michael J. Fox. I just couldn't believe it. Mm hmm. And I love that the fact that his suit was rumpled. Yes. Like he just, you know, (laughs) pulled it out of his backpack. He's a kid. He's a mess. Yeah. (laughs) And Doc Ock just jumps into the fray here, still looking for his machine. Mm hmm. Yeah. The power of the sun in the palm of my hands. That would be the one thing he brings with him. His tagline. Yes. (laughs) That way, yes, they certainly brought in a lot of those iconic lines from the other movies and brought them here. And it is seamless. It doesn't seem forced. Not at all. And Alfred Molina looks fantastic. He does. And I am very grateful that he's wearing a turtleneck. (laughs) Yeah, he had a glow up too. Though I will say, I love him. But at times, it does look like he has a hamster on his head. True. Yes, but he still has a glow up. I don't know, but a turtleneck seems to suit him. (laughs) Compared to, you know, bare naked chest (laughs) with a wrestler's belt around his waist. Yeah. And he realizes pretty quickly, this is not the Peter Parker he knows. Yes. And he's incredibly confused, which is understandable. Yeah. Especially because Peter is able to take control of his arms. That is fun. That is super awesome. I love it. And he gets a little mouthy with it. It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, that's just the first instance of how Watts does an amazing job 
Uh, count how many times we say the word amazing in this episode. Sorry, everybody, but it's going to keep happening. Take a sip each time. He does a great job of even integrating old technology in with the new MCU technology. Like, welcome to Bluetooth, Doctor. <laughs> hey, Bluetooth existed at that time. Really? Yeah. Oh. All right, then. Jesus. <laughs> You know what? No, you don't get to say, you don't get to say that because you have forgotten no less than six names in the first twenty minutes of this recording. That's fair. <laughs> and you know, I found myself every time Peter calls him Doc, I just feel like he's talking to Christopher Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole sequence with Doc Ock on the bridge is fantastic. And I have a question for you. Yeah, the MIT rep. Do you think she would have? reconsidered if Doc Ock would not have shown up and Peter would not have saved her life? I don't know. She was funny. She was funny. I do feel bad for her. And trust a teacher to go and shout at a man with eight limbs. Yeah. Shock played a bit of a part too, I think. Yes, but when she started shouting at him, I started having flashbacks. (laughs) Yeah, and Molina does such a great job playing the two sides of Octavius here, this tortured man who's just absolutely miserable being haunted by these voices, you know, for seemingly so long now. Yeah. And in this movie, they've certainly toned down the melodrama when it comes to that. Oh, yeah. In the original trilogy, there is a more theatrical sort of acting with that. In this case, it almost feels normal. Like, you know, this is a conversation that he has had with himself a million times yeah so when we see him returned to himself when peter figures that out he's released from the arms control it's a wonderful moment it is i don't want to say it but you can see the weight lifted off his shoulders (laughs) (laughs) but yeah he just completely transforms into a nice likable human being yeah i always liked otto octavius yeah he seemed like a really nice guy in the first trilogy and now i would be happy to have a chat with him absolutely he is immediately grateful to peter he wants to help with the rest and i really like that you know this version of norman and otto have each other even briefly for norman's sake especially Mm -hmm. right yeah, because he's so lost. Yeah, but in, in a way, it kind of makes it sadder, too. Because Norman sees what he once was in Otto, what he's lost. Yes, true. And also, we don't see them having a relationship in the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. But these conversations, these small conversations that they're having, it gives us a sense of history between them. Right. It's a camaraderie of, of like minds. Right, because in the original trilogy, Doc Ock just shows up in the second movie Mm -hmm. and suddenly James Franco is buddy-buddy with him. Now we see that Doc Ock was working for Osborne long before, quote-unquote, James Franco discovered him. Right, and it makes total sense that they would have known each other. Yes, they were both brilliant minds. Yeah, and it's great that Doc Ock actually gets these two moments of redemption because first we see you know, like you said, that weight lifted and him returned Mm -hmm. to himself. But he gets a wonderful redemptive moment at the end, helping Peter to defuse Electro. Yes, he certainly came through 
in that moment. And if it weren't for him, things could have gone downhill very fast. And now we do indeed come to Mr. Osborne, a.k.a. the Green Goblin. I never thought I'd be happy to see him again. <laughs> never. I like Willem Dafoe. I've seen him in a lot of other stuff and he's always fantastic. No question. How that man doesn't have an Oscar is beyond me. Yeah, he's incredible. And speaking of Oscars, I see an Oscar in Tom Holland's future. Absolutely. He does not get anywhere near enough credit for his performance throughout this trilogy. No, no. He's so underappreciated. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we've talked about how good this script is, but I'm going to say most of the credit for Goblin goes to Defoe himself. Absolutely. One thousand percent. I agree with you. That laugh. Oh, it's bone chilling. Comically <laughs> bone chilling, though. It's amazing. It is. It's amazing. And when he's not Goblin, he is so vulnerable and scared. Oh, when he breaks that mask and just runs away like a scared little boy. Oh, we we don't even see his face, but it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's so lost. Yeah. I never imagined he could be such a sympathetic figure, but he is like, you know, an elderly homeless man with dementia just wandering the streets. Yeah, exactly. He knows something is wrong and that's what's even sadder. He knows he doesn't belong. I have nowhere else to go. Yeah, it is incredibly sad. And and I think he did a much better job differentiating between the two sides in this movie compared to the first Spider-Man movie. That's a really good point. You, there's no question you know exactly who's Goblin and who's Norman in this movie. Yes. In the first one, you have a little bit of confusion at certain points. And we're covering Moon Knight now. We know about disassociative identity disorder. This is also kind of like that, isn't it? It really is. And he does a masterful job with it. He does. And, you know, costuming is also very important in this movie. We said, you know, Electro got his glow up. I'm going to talk about it with May too. This purple hoodie really, along with the laugh and the manic energy Defoe brings to this, this is the Joker. Mm -hmm. This is Ledger's Joker, you know? Yeah, I don't know if they intended that, but I think having him in this hoodie and this green jacket is important because, one, it looks like it's from a thrift store. Maybe, possibly May may have given him just these extra clothes to put on over his costume. Mm -hmm. And it also shows us his vulnerability. He's, he's got this oversized hoodie and this jacket on him. It makes him seem smaller. You're right about that. Yeah, because he doesn't have a whole lot of meat on his bones either. Never has. No. In fact, when we see him right at the beginning, when he's talking to the mask, his body versus head proportion seemed a bit odd to me. I don't know whether the entire costume is CGI or he had certain parts on him and they added on to it. So I think that in order to make it less distracting, they made him wear clothes on top of it could be and what i really love about norman here is that even so lost so scared he still wants to help 
Yes, and he's still curious. Yes, because he's something of a scientist himself. How did he keep a straight face? <laughs> How many takes did that require? Yeah, it must have taken several <laughs> takes to do that. <laughs> and again, bringing in iconic lines from other movies and making it work out seamlessly. Yes, my whole theater just peed themselves when he said that. <laughs> They essentially took all the big memes of the Raimi trilogy and brought them in. There's plenty of them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what else you can see that comes through with Defoe's performance is that Norman wants to help not only because it's who he is, but because he feels more himself taking part in the science of it all. Yes, that's his safe space. Yep. But that desire to help doesn't last very long because he can only hold off the goblin so long. I don't think it was so much as holding off as there are triggers. Possibly. In the Raimi trilogy, we notice that every time Osborne's livelihood, his work is threatened in any way, Goblin shows up to quote-unquote save the day. And in this case, when Doc Ock tells Osborne that, you know, how will it feel for you to be yourself and all of that, this was not Goblin saving Osborn, this was Goblin saving himself. Yep. A defense mechanism. Yes. So in a lot of ways, it does work like DID. Yep. Protection. Yes. Alters can come up as protection or in whatever way the person needs it. Right. And when he does make that turn, oh, what a job by Defoe. Norman's on sabbatical, honey. Yeah, it's amazing. He's even, it's, it almost seems like he's able to change his bone structure. He's got one of those faces. Yeah, he has. And even the lighting and the angle in which they show Goblin versus Osborn is amazing. The way they do it, you can see 100%. This is a different person. Yeah, like that laugh while he's getting beaten. He's just smiling mm -hmm. maniacally. And like for me, this was, again, the Joker who doesn't care in this moment if he lives or dies. Mm -hmm. He's just enjoying causing the chaos. He is certainly enjoying causing the chaos, but I do believe there is a sense of self-preservation there. A little bit to continue his ultimate plan of more yes. torment and torture, which, which he does. And of course, we're going to talk more about this as we go, but... Mm -hmm. When Goblin arrives at the end, he is just in all his comic campy glory, but in a way that works. He reminds me a lot also of uh, Alan Rickman in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where he's just chewing the friggin' scenery and going so over the top that it's just glorious. It is. And normally in the MCU so far, people have generally tried to stay away from the over-the-top acting and trying to stay away from that comic bookness of it. But in this case, they went for it and it worked. Okay, so we're definitely going to be coming back to Mr. Osborne. But for now, we are going to move on to the Peters Parker 3. <laughs> and this time, they are not the Idiots 3. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't take me back there. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, listen to our Thor episodes. <laughs> All right. So first and foremost, just a random guy here, Mr. McGuire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just sort of walks into a portal. I mean, that's very nonchalant of him. Yes. 
And a question for everyone here in general, if someone could tell me, did Tobey Maguire go through puberty when he was 40? (laughs) Because his voice is noticeably deeper than in his own movies. I always felt like in his own movies, he was doing a higher pitch. I don't know. I don't know why, but I always felt like he was doing a higher pitch and he didn't seem comfortable in his own skin in those movies. Yeah, because Peter Parker was an alien, covered ground. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. He sounded the same to me in the Raimi movies as he did in like Pleasantville. So, okay, not sure. I haven't seen him in anything else except for the Raimi trilogy and now in No Way Home. Well... Based on Maguire's performance in this alone, I feel that nobody but John Watts should ever be allowed to direct a live-action Spider-Man movie again. <laughs> Let's not take any chances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually enjoyed seeing him in this, which is quite a feat. Yes, he's almost like the big brother of the group. Yeah. Which is nice. He has a sense of being grounded which is something that we did not see in the original Raimi trilogy. And that is why I say that this movie has elevated all the other Spidey movies, because while Tobey Maguire's Peter acknowledges his wrongdoings in the past, and he also says that he has tried to do better. Yeah, and you know what I think also helps with that whole vibe is that, yes, he's old enough to be Peter Parker, our Peter Parker's father, but he's also old enough to be Tom Holland's father. Mm -hmm. So it just gives it that extra boost of reality on a big brothery father figure type of role. Yes, it does. And he ends up being sort of the guiding force for our Peter at the end. Yeah. And now we have Mr. Garfield who really needs to change his goddamn name because every time I see it in my notes, I see an orange cat. That's my default. Yeah, and then this movie, he's the absolute opposite of a cat. He's very much like a very excited dog. (laughs) And I absolutely loved him in this. Whereas I did not care for the Peter Parker of the amazing Spider-Man movies. He was a joy. Yes, he was. He was very loving. He was less tortured compared to his amazing Spider-Man days. And he absolutely was likable. I did not like his version of Spider-Man in those two movies at all. Yeah, my theater absolutely lost their minds as soon as that portal opened because we all were thinking the same thing. Look at that string bean. That's Garfield for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And you had to really love his excitement too with all the science of the multiverse. It was infectious. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be excited. Yeah, and... Not only, you know, did you feel his anguish, but the comedy worked so well with him. Are you going to go into battle dressed as a cool youth pastor? (laughs) Yeah, and I think smart move on them to keep Tobey Maguire in regular clothes for the most part. Definitely. And again, that fits really well with the original trilogy. Because in those movies, I don't know why but they try to go with the Superman motif of him pulling his clothes off with the Spider-Man suit underneath. So in this case, again, him having his clothes on and then taking it off to his Spider-Man suit made sense. Yes, his underoos. That's what I'm going to call them. (laughs) (laughs) 
And as we alluded to earlier, Andrew Garfield gets that great redemptive moment of saving MJ as she's falling from the scaffolding. Yes, it feels like he really needed that. Oh, yeah. And his his face says so much there. Yes, it does. And I love it because he asks her, are you okay?" And then he tears up and she asks him, are you okay?" (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those. No, but I will be kind of moments. Yeah, absolutely. And it is cathartic to see that happen. And I hate that it has to be cathartic in the first place. Yes. Yes, I agree. I'm sorry, I need a drink of water. My mouth is a little salty right now. Hang on. (laughs) It's coming in through osmosis. Mm -hmm. All right. So moving on to the man of the hour, Mr. Holland. Can we just, for a minute, for a job so well done in all three of these movies, I honestly don't know if we're going to see him again in the MCU because there's been a lot of mixed messaging. And if we don't, man, what a way to go. We better see him. I don't know. We have to see him. Come on. We'll see. Marvel, you can't let him go. No. Well, it's not entirely their decision. He has a life, doesn't he? He has choices. Throw money at him. Throw bucket loads, truck loads of money at him. Stop. Get him back. Stop. We want him to be happy. And if he wants to move on from this and have a family and take his career in a different direction, we support him. Say it. No. (laughs) We want him back. So this movie picks up exactly where Far From Home left off of Peter's identity being revealed to the world. And from that first moment, his primary concern is for his loved ones. Yes, he's not concerned about the fallout for himself. He's just worried about what will happen to everyone he loves because of the bullshit. Yes. And after this movie, I see Peter Parker as the most noble of all the Avengers, even more than Steve. Mm -hmm. Right. He shows such incredible courage maturity and heart throughout this movie you know just taking on more responsibility than any 17 year old should have to and even taking responsibility for a mess that really isn't his yes he certainly shows maturity in a lot of ways but he also does make stupid teenage mistakes of course which he should because he's a stupid teenager because the stupid is implied with teenager Any parents who are raising teenagers right now will agree. Yes, and all of those of us who once were teenagers too. Yeah, we know. Yes. (laughs) But, I mean, Peter's a better kid than I ever was. He's such a role model here in the way he treats these, you know, quote-unquote villains who come through. They're just people to him. People who need help. Yeah, they are. And it's, it's the deference he shows them, still calling them sir treating them with that humanity that endears him even more. Yeah, for him, they are adults. That's it. And you speak to adults respectfully. That seems to be Peter's way. Well, yeah, and that's May's influence too, of treating people, all people with kindness, especially those in need. Sure, absolutely, yes. 
And that's why these particular villains worked. Why Rhino wouldn't have worked. These villains, their transformations were all unintentional. And to a degree, they're all victims of either bad luck, you know, because you got to watch where you fall, or <laughs> a well-intentioned experiment that went bad. Right. And Rhino was a crook before we, before he became Rhino. Right. And he volunteered for it. Right. And another thing with Peter is that even with all of the craziness happening throughout this movie, he still takes a moment to thank his friends for still being there for him. Yes. And he's taken on so much of that guilt of their life being ruined because of him. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to not overcompensate, but he is trying to be overly grateful and gracious towards them because they're still wanting to be his friends. Right. He knows what they've sacrificed. Yes. And he feels lucky to have them as his friends and he feels like they don't deserve the shit show that they're in. Right. And honestly, it's hard to fault Peter for trying to help the villains because he's so good. You know, MJ sums it up perfectly about Peter's choice not to let them die. That's not who he is. Yeah, and, and Peter is a hero through and through. If he sees a bunch of people standing in front of him, heading to their doom, heading to their death, he will not allow that. He will not want that. Keeping the superhero thing aside, you have a 17-year-old holding a box with a button and telling him that if you push this button, all these people standing in front of you are going to die. That's a horrible feeling. Yeah. And hero through and through, he's also May Parker's son through and through. Absolutely. Yes. And it's her influence that leads him to use that piece of shit Jameson to lure the villains to the Statue of Liberty, not to kill them, not to send them back right away, but to help them. Yeah. Even after everything that happened, even after May's death, he still wants to help them. So he's not a saint by any means. He definitely has anger towards Goblin, but he doesn't want to take it out on the rest of them. Right. And it's that final scene with Goblin that really shows us Tom Holland's Peter Parker in a nutshell in his decision not to kill him, which is even more powerful because Tom Holland actually gets two arc resolution moments in this movie. And that's just the first his choice not to kill Goblin. Mm -hmm. Our Peter Parker is like a Russian nesting doll of nobility. Every time you think you can't love him more for making such a sacrifice, such a choice, he says, hold my tea, you know, because British. <laughs> and 17, yes. you know, underage. Well, 25, if we're going to stick with British, you know, but yeah, anyway, crossing the streams here. <laughs> We have the multiverse breaking further apart, which is really well done visually. Yes. It is Peter's solution, not Dr. Strange's, for him to cast the spell making the entire world forget Peter Parker. Yeah, it is the ultimate sacrifice. Dying is easy. Living is hard. Where did we hear this from? Many times. From where? I don't know where that originates, but... You hear it a lot, and I'm sure it's been ascribed to a lot of different people over the years, but I don't know the source. <laughs> yeah. 
I can't remember where I heard it. Some movie. Yep. And I I teared up again with Call Me Steven. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's just a ping pong. Doctor Strange is just ping ponging between Sir and Steven. Yeah. Oh, and that's where you see he has so much respect and admiration for Peter. I don't think Strange could have made that choice himself. Yeah, I don't think so either. And as much as Strange has this hard exterior and he is constantly berating Peter about his choices and all of that, despite the fact that it it was Strange's fault, he still has a certain amount of respect for him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done the spell in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I think Peter's sacrifice here is even more noble than Tony's. Yeah. Because the way Peter is going to have to live is just beyond tragic. Yes, it is. Seeing your friends, seeing your loved ones around and not being able to speak to them, them not knowing you even exist, is heartbreaking. Yeah, not to mention the practicalities of it all. Yes, his entire life that he dreamed of is gone. By this point, I could barely handle Peter saying goodbye to Ned and MJ. Yeah, yeah, it was heartbreaking. And not just because he's saying goodbye, but because at this point, he still doesn't get it. I'm like, honey, no, they can't know ever at all. Yeah, he doesn't get it, but it's also part of a defense mechanism, you know, to make him feel better in that moment, to make them feel better in that moment. Yeah, but he still does believe it. He thinks it's going to work out, that he's going to be able to go to them and rebuild everything and it'll all be okay in the end he doesn't get it yet sure but again it's understandable yeah that's a certain amount of denial he's losing his entire world yeah he deserves a little bit of he doesn't get it yeah and it's so beautifully shot with the sun behind them him and mj Mm -hmm. i love that this is the first time they say i love you to each other It's appropriate. It is. And, you know, even if they weren't together romantically, it would still be appropriate. Yeah, totally. So once everybody goes home, because they were far from home, weren't they? (laughs) Don't confuse me further, please. Peter takes his script that he has written out here and goes to see MJ working at the donut shop. Didn't you think it was so sweet that her and Ned were still buddies? Yeah, it was sweet. It makes us it makes me think that they were best friends. Yeah. In the absence of Peter. Yeah. That he wasn't necessarily the glue that held t- them together. They had a bond too. And Tom Holland does a fantastic job reacting to everything he's seeing in the scene. His face says it all. Yeah, he's very expressive. Yeah. And there's that last moment he was still going to try to tell MJ, but he sees the bandage above her eye and that's when it finally sinks in. Yeah, he knows that telling them is again putting them in danger. Yeah. And he sees too, they're better off without him. They both got into MIT. They're going to live the lives they wanted, the lives they deserve. Yes, absolutely. Throughout the movie, of course, Tom Holland, even though he's not 17, he certainly seems 17 and he acts it. But after being forgotten, doesn't he seem older, more mature? I don't know. I'd have to see it again. I'd have to see that part again. Okay. To judge. Okay. 
it to me it seems like he's grown up in however long it was couple of days couple of weeks whatever it is i mean that would make sense he's completely on his own in the world yeah with nothing mm-hmm. it just breaks my heart when he walks away too because this is true love letting someone go to keep them safe to let them mm-hmm. be happy yes love does not mean possession right and the best part about it is that peter is happy too when he moves into this tiny apartment with all of his earthly possessions fitting into a single box he's happy because they're happy yes he is and he's looking forward to building a new life he still has that lego yeah he does that goes to show at the end of the day he's still a kid yeah yeah and that's his connection you know to his friends mm-hmm. yeah we, and we've seen the death star since the first movie yeah and i love that they show us the ged book too it reminds us what he's mm-hmm. made of that he still has plans for his life he's gonna do something with himself besides yeah. just being spider-man so can you explain to me what is a ged Yeah, so for all our international listeners who aren't familiar with uh, American education, GED is just general education degree. It's what you get in place of a high school diploma if for whatever reason you drop out or don't finish high school. Okay, all right. All right, so we've discussed the three Peters individually. Let's talk about them all together now here because they are electric together. Yeah, they are fantastic together. You would think that they were all friends and they've known each other for years, which makes sense because they're all the same person. Right. And oh, the three of them meeting for the first time while Tom Holland is grieving with those soft violins mm-hmm. playing the Spider-Man theme. Oh, it's just lovely. Yeah, it is. And he also has... He senses them before he sees them. Yeah. And they understand how much he needs them in this moment because they've been there. Yeah, they have. They know what he's going through. Yeah. And we get another great call back there. Not my problem. I don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Except with Maguire's, it was more bitchy. Yes. Yeah. I can't blame Tom Holland for feeling this way in this moment. Who wouldn't? Sure. You know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Forget about the physical pain of it because he is a superhero. Just the emotional weight of everything that happened, losing his mom. Yeah. For all intents and purposes, anyone will want to take a break. Anyone will say, fuck this shit. Yeah. So essentially, his brothers here are able to pull him out Mm -hmm. of this dark place and i love the way the three of them bond over the science of it all the work yeah yeah they do that's fantastic the camaraderie in the lab amongst everyone it's fantastic yeah yeah i had a best friend he died in my arms after he tried to kill me (laughs) poor ned (laughs) i love jacob Fadalon so much he's so good at this he is And then he very kindly reassures Tom Holland's Peter that he's never going to do that to him. He's never going to betray him. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, they do such a great job of using Ned for these tension breaks. Yes. 
even MJ to a certain extent. Yes. I mean, sure, she's she's got more brain cells than all of them combined, but still, she's a fish out of water. Oh, yeah. Don't even get me started. Her and May are the smartest people in this movie. And that they make it known. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And one thing that made me so happy was Andrew Garfield saying not only we're making his webs a hassle, they're expensive. Yeah. We were worried about that when we were discussing this movie. <laughs> he needed a damn trust fund just for his web budget. Yes, he said he needed to make more because he ran out. Finally, we get an explanation. Yeah, and the swapping of the supervillain stories, it's just great. Yeah. and uh, It's like war veterans, you know, swapping stories, showing their scars. Yes, Toby's existential crisis. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and of course, his back. <laughs> I never thought about the ergonomics of swinging till then. Yeah, it's got to be a little tough on the skeleton, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, shoulders, sh- a lot of the stress on the shoulders. And, you know, I was wondering, Andrew Garfield's not a big guy. I remember thinking to myself, I hope he didn't actually hurt his back doing this. <laughs> no, I'm sure there must have been some wires involved. Maybe. And lifting someone up in that way is not that heavy. You know, he's not doing a fireman carry. That's true. It is an uncomfortable thing to do, though. My husband asks me to do that for him about once a month. Mm-hmm. And we're about the same differential in height as McGuire and Garfield are. So it can be pretty uncomfortable mm-hmm. for, for both parties involved. Sure, yes. You guys know that Amy and I are very different people. One of the greatest challenges in building our business has been overcoming our contrasting relationship with technology. That's a nice way of saying Amy has a silicon thumb while I can break a computer just by looking at it sideways. And we know many of you fall into one of these camps, so we're here to tell you about one of our favorite products using a bilingual approach. Take it away, Amy. Backblaze is a cloud-based backup solution for all your data storage needs. Backblaze is a kind of digital safe where you can protect your photos, home videos, and important documents from things like fire, floods, or people like me, who can delete their entire business from Google Drive without even knowing it. With its simple user interface and smooth setup, Backblaze is accessible to everyone. Backblaze is easy enough for Luddites like me to use without breaking anything. Use the link in our show notes to get a 15-day free trial of Backblaze and help support the Marvelous Madams. You get two weeks free before you buy, and we get money too. When it comes to data, they have your back. And you know what was really awesome? Is that the three Peters don't know how to work together right away. Yeah. And that's realistic. Yeah. They're they're not just, you know, one mind coming together. Yeah. And it's the youngest of them who takes the lead. Because he's an Avenger. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And also, we actually get a hint of this before the fight scene. In the lab, we immediately see that they all took their various projects and started doing it on their own. Mm -hmm. Nobody was consulting with each other. Yeah. So, yes, Tom Holland takes the lead. And holy shit, I will just never forget the three of them 
swinging into frame and landing together. Talk about iconic. Yeah. And also the scene where the three of them are swinging towards Sandman Electro and them coming from the opposite side. It is straight out of the comic pages. It's such a feel good sequence, too. Mm -hmm. It is. I must say, I got a bit confused between all the Spideys. I think that for me, they did a good enough job with voices, you know, calling to each other, telegraphing all of that. Sure, yes, they did. But you had to concentrate. Yeah, it helps a little that they're like stacked in terms of height, too, because you have Tom Holland at like 5'6", <laughs> and Toby Bard about 5'8", mm -hmm. and Garfield's 5'10". So yeah, that, that helps mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. I was looking at the color of the webbing on their suits. Okay. and. It's here where Tom Holland just shines even harder here. The intensity he has with Defoe, he looks like he's going to tear this old man to shreds. Yeah, he's not thinking. No, he's an animal. Yeah, it's just pure rage. And Goblin is just having the time of his fucking life, as is Willem Defoe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And man, when he just starts wailing away, it is painful. And like, I'm scared for him in that moment. He's losing himself. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. And when Tobey Maguire comes in and holds that medal, I think this is one of the best scenes in the movie. It is. No words. They're just looking at each other. And Tobey Maguire's Peter is giving... Tom Holland's Peter the time to think before he regrets what he does. Yeah, the eyes say it all. There was no monologue. There was no sanctimonious, you shouldn't do this, be the bigger man. None of that. Yeah. And it had to be Tobey Maguire taking the lead here because he, of all people, knows it won't help. This is just going to kill a part of you. Yes. And he has been down that dark path that we've seen. Yeah. So instead, Andrew Garfield throws Tom Holland the cure and he stabs Goblin with it. And oh God, just again, Defoe turning on a dime here. Heartbreaking. What have I done? Yeah. Yeah. He looks like a child. He does. He looks like a lost man. He doesn't know how he reached there. And he'll never recover. He won't. No, unfortunately. But at least he has his mind back. Yeah, but not before he stabs Tobey Maguire. I didn't see that coming. I thought he was going to die for a minute there. Yeah, me too. I was like, that's one way to close one chapter. Yeah, that was another great moment, though. You're in so much pain, aren't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like they're, they're holding it together for the younger brother. You know, let him have fun. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So speaking of fun, we need to discuss here a little bit BFFs. Across the Spider-Verse. Yes. And PSA, BFFs generally do not want to kill each other yes. or sleep with each other's girlfriends or get jealous when said friend's parent likes them more. That is Amy's way of saying that Peter and Harry's alleged friendship in uh, the Raimi trilogy made no sense and was terrible. It was toxic as fuck. It was more toxic or as toxic as Mary Jane and Peter 
together. Yeah, there was no foundation for it. McGuire and Franco had no chemistry whatsoever. And you know what? I'm not going to fault Toby McGuire for that. Maybe he didn't like the piece of shit. I hope he didn't like the piece of shit, you know? James Franco doesn't have chemistry with anyone. Ugh. He's so full of himself that he'd be happy making out with himself. Yeah, you're not wrong. There's so much love for James Franco on this podcast. And there shouldn't be. <laughs> and then we have Peter and Harry in Amazing Spider-Man 2. And Garfield and Dane DeHaan, they're really good together. Yes, they were. But their relationship, it came out of nowhere. Yeah. There's nothing to it. Yeah. And the history that they tried to build didn't really stand too well. Just because of the situation that they reconnected in. Right. So moving on here to the MCU, we have Peter and Ned. And I'm going to include MJ in this too, because they are very much a triangle. And because they did this right with the relationship, Peter and MJ are friends for a while before they are a couple. Yes. And I would like to clarify that they're a trio, but they're not a love triangle. There you go. And it hit me like a ton of bricks this morning. The, the couple is different, but these three are so much like Harry, Ron, and Hermione. That's right. Yeah. Except none of them are as stupid as Ron. I'll give you that. Yeah. Ron is a bit of a dumb dumb. Yes. Yes, he is. He always comes through in the end, but yes, he is. Yeah. I mean, you have the nobility and courage of Harry. You have the brains and loyalty of Hermione with MJ. And Ned is such a loyal friend. I'll say he's a better friend than Ron because Ron has some shitty moments. Yes, he does. But overall, very similar. Ned is the heart of the group. Oh. MJ is the brain. And, and Peter, he's the guts. And he has all three elements in him. Yes, and all three of them would be in Gryffindor. I'm saying it now. I firmly believe it. <laughs> Once all the chaos ensues after Peter's identity is revealed, he does still have to go to school. And I love the way yes. MJ stands tall, walking hand in hand with him. And Ned, too, right behind them. Yes. You know, this scene actually made me think about how they, Tom Holland and Zendaya, how they must have experienced things with all the paparazzi and the craziness that they experience all the time. Yeah. They probably didn't need to act too much in those scenes. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. Not many kids would be this brave and this loyal. They are heroes in their own right, Ned and MJ. Yes, absolutely. And I do love the way this movie also uses Flash for comic relief. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This idiot. I have to give credit to Flash for a getting over his existential crisis after finding, <laughs> finding out Peter is Spider-Man. <laughs> and two, writing a book and publishing it that fast. I'll tell you this, he's no Neville Longbottom, that's for sure. <laughs> no, Neville Longbottom was always a klutz with a heart of gold. Flash never was. No, no, but he's funny as hell. Yes, he is. But, you know, beyond being so full of integrity and so loyal, MJ and Ned are Peter's rocks. Yes, absolutely. And especially after May's death. Yeah. 
And I love that they're able to make fun of the whole situation, you know, and still before shit goes down, still plan for the future. Yeah, they have to. Yeah, they have to make fun. Otherwise, they lose their minds and they have to plan for the future. Otherwise, how can they function? Yeah. Their world is falling apart. And Peter and MJ never treat Ned like a third wheel, nor does the movie. Yeah, even though he comes in at a rather awkward moment, we don't see like a close up of them getting getting irritated or anything like that. No. In fact, they're 100% on board with all three of them living together. Mm -hmm. They've made their own little family. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is consistent for kids like Peter and MJ who come from what we think of as non-traditional homes, you know, to get this tight with their friends. And serious kudos to Jacob Batalon, the way he toes the line between innocence and maturity with Ned. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm magic now. (laughs) Yeah, it's hilarious the way he's discovering his powers. He's going to show up somewhere else, right? I, hope I mean, he's so. going to be in Doctor Strange. I hope so. He's so happy to help his buddy to make a difference, but he still loves his toys. Yeah, absolutely. And when he's falling, the cloak of levitation brings him down. Yes, it shows him in that moment. <laughs> he's adorable. Yeah, and he ends up saying, like, thank you, Code, sir. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And we cannot emphasize enough how important, even though we see a lot of the villains, just how important MJ is to this movie. Yes, sure. Absolutely. You know, and this is why I say her along with May, that she is the wisest of everyone in this movie. She's the one who points out that this is entirely Stephen Strange's fault. Yes. And not only that, she knows exactly how to deal with the authorities. Yes, yes. Big theme, people. Never, ever talk to the police without an attorney present. Ned. (laughs) Ned is a lovable cutie pie. He's, He's easily fooled. And I love the way MJ reacts to to what Peter has done going through with this spell it's so healthy she doesn't get pissed she's not immature yeah she isn't portrayed like a typical teenager who screams their lungs out at any inconvenience right she kind of gives him the compliment sandwich you know like (laughs) i understand why you did this you have a good heart Mm -hmm. i totally get it but you know next time you don't need to deal with this alone let us know what you're thinking. Maybe we can workshop something. Yeah. And it's not patronizing. No. She respects what he did. It's one of the reasons why she loves him. Yeah. She respects it. And she also knows that he made a mistake out of sheer desperation. Yeah. And you can't blame him for that. His heart was in the right place. Absolutely. And she didn't get pissy with him. And she wanted to support him and help him out. And... And be a sounding board if needed. Yeah. And this is just one of the reasons why both MJ and Ned are such great role models for healthy relationships and integrity. Mm-hmm. Seriously, yes. parents, you want to show your teenagers how to be good people? Look no further than Ned and MJ. They understood that some things are worth sacrificing for. They helped save countless lives in the process. Yes. And they put themselves in danger, not unnecessary danger. Yeah but they did it for the right reasons. 
And it's so sweet that MJ knows exactly where to find Peter in his darkest hour. Yeah. Again, no words necessary between the three of them, especially because Ned loved May too. She was the second mom to him. Yes, absolutely. And overall, those two just never waver in their loyalty, no matter how rough things get. Even when they're running away from yes. a giant lizard. <laughs> yep, that's true. Okay, so we've talked about best buddies. Let's go over our romantic couplings here. Well, it's just one. Yeah, so we've covered the relationship of the Raimi trilogy. We're not going to rehash Peter and Mary Jane there. Uh, but just briefly, Amazing Spider-Man, the chemistry between Garfield and Emma Stone is friggin' off the charts. Yes, it is. But that was a bit of a problem, too, because they're way too adult. Yeah, and again, this is something that we have discussed in our Amazing Spider-Man episodes. Yes. Yeah, they didn't... Also, there was very little foundation. They didn't spend much time together. It wasn't believable. But what a job Watts and the writers have done with the progression of Peter and MJ in the MCU. Yes, they have by far the most believable relationship of all the Spideys. And we've seen their relationship grow on screen. I think... Aside from them, the other main couple in the MCU was Tony and Pepper. And their relationship grew a lot off screen. That's true. They were good for each other. They were a loving couple together. But with Peter and MJ, you can see them grow. You can see them not, not only grow as a couple, but as individuals yeah. as well. Yeah. And as friends, you know, it's mm -hmm. very much the way a teenage relationship should progress. They're still worried about kid things, you know, but they also understand the bigger stakes. Yes. And I love the fact that they don't make it seem like they're soulmates, the one for the the one and done, only one for each other. We had a lot of that in the Raimi trilogy and Amazing Spider-Man movies. Yeah. And importantly, we also see them spending time together and going to school together, sure. being classmates. Yeah, you know, living normal life, doing normal things. Yeah. All right, so now let's get into Aunt May, R.I.P. Yeah, give me a second. I need to go wipe my tears. Yeah, so the previous Aunt Mays, Rosemary Harris and Sally Field, they were not characters. They were just misogynistic caricatures. Yeah, they were there just for the sake of having an Aunt May so that there's an Uncle Ben. right. That has not been the case with Marissa Tomei since Homecoming. No, absolutely. She has been an equal partner for Peter. She has been a mother. She has been a friend, a guardian, everything. Yes. And most importantly, she has been a strong, independent woman with her own life. Yes. That we see in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's working. She has a relationship independent of Peter, a romantic relationship. Yes, well, for a little while, much to Happy's dismay. Yes, Happy was not happy. Aww. But she is still a mama bear at the police station. You do not mess with her cub. Oh, yes, 100%. And she's also a wonderful human being. This is a civic leader. Yes, yeah. Another hero in her own right. Because even though May was blipped herself, 
this woman has started her own nonprofit organization to help displaced peoples feast food emergency aid shelter and training yeah and that's not easy to do she's come back to a house that was occupied by someone else and rebuild her life after five years and may parker is not you know wealthy no she clearly had a job in the previous movies but she's not working over there anymore and she's created this organization this charitable organization to help people that's admirable and clearly we can see where peter gets his nobility and his drive to help from yeah she's his moral compass Mm-hmm. And what I love most is that they don't show her sacrificing herself to do all this. They don't show her like frazzled in ratty clothes and, you know, just giving up everything for others. No, she still looks damn good. She's taking care of herself. Mm-hmm. She's making time for that relationship and other things. I love it. Every minute of it. Yeah. She's a healthy, well-rounded character and she's a a real woman. Yeah. And what I love most about her relationship with Happy is that she is very much in charge of it. (laughs) Yeah. That was from the moment they, they got together. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think Happy also understood this woman's way out of my league. So I better tell the line here. Yeah. Go with the flow. And you know, we, they play their relationship a bit for laughs and Happy is, unhappy and all of that but sure for may it probably was a fling but for happy this was he loved oh absolutely no question you know it was genuine love and it is so wonderful to see a woman in her late 50s being portrayed as desirable and sexual in a healthy way she's not a cougar she's not over sexualized yeah and she's having a relationship with an age-appropriate man. Yes. You know why she broke up with him? I just fi- I just figured it out. What? He's not the ultimate fighting champion. It always <laughs> comes back to that. I'm sorry, John Favreau. You just don't make the cut. Yeah, he's a long way away from those days. Oh, he certainly is. Many years and many pounds. Yes. <laughs> and it's so sweet. And this is just one of the many ways we see that May Parker is truly Peter's mother. She is just as excited about his college applications as he is. Yes, she is. She's involved. Yeah. And she's so proud. She is. And I have to say, Dougie Robot Home is equally excited because the minute the MIT letter comes in, he just bangs the Death Star to the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but... You know, again, here, subtlety. Every time we see May, you know, getting these things out of the mail, we see her in professional clothes. She's coming back from work. She's got her own life. This is not an old lady in a babushka or, you know, the helpless Sally Field who can't handle anything by herself. Yes. And also, she's not overbearing. She's not opening the letters before Peter opens them. Yeah. Oh, my God. So there is this moment. It's just a quick phone call. Peter is at like the magic lab. I'll call it the dungeon, whatever. Because on that call, we hear that she's at the shelter. She's working. She's helping other people. She's more of a character in those 15 seconds than Rosemary Harris ever was across an entire trilogy. That's true. But to be fair, Rosemary Harris was not doing anything except 
maybe ironing of the bushkas. Well, that's the problem. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's the whole crux of it. Yeah, I know. I know. Aunt May in the MCU trilogy versus the other Aunt Mays is a night and day difference. Yeah. And, you know, to continue with the relationship, I think it's great that Happy is able to help Peter and May without it becoming, oh, the big man taking care of his woman and her kid. Because they they broke up before this. Yeah, they did. And he still wanted to help. Yep. He didn't end up becoming a bitter dude like, oh, go fuck yourself, you know, deal with it yourself. And at the same time, he's not like, oh, this is my house. Right. My rules and all that bullshit. He ends up becoming more like a put upon sort of harrowed father who's dealing with a bunch of unruly kids. Yeah, I mean, he does get a little upset about the dirt man in his condo, which I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, who are these people coming into my house? Sure, anyone would be concerned. Yeah, but, you know, this is a quick way of reminding us again, Happy Hogan is a good man. And mm-hmm. he loves May. So, of course, he's going to help her. Again, healthy love here, being a good friend and also doing what's right by an Avenger who helped to save the damn world. Yes, and he's not doing this with the hope or the intention of maybe winning May back. No, no. He... And we clearly see that he's not trying to force the relationship or make her uncomfortable because May has the bedroom and he's sleeping on the lazy boy. With his CPAP machine. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be honest, I have no <laughs> doubt that was John Favreau's actual CPAP machine. There's no way he doesn't have one. <laughs> does look really uncomfortable they are extremely uncomfortable i can tell you from experience how do you sleep with that i don't know very uncomfortably yeah thank god that didn't have to become a reality for me it almost was but yeah just a half an hour of trying to use that was an absolute nightmare that was not going to happen for me Mm. yeah but yeah none of those weird sexual politics good job movie yes absolutely and may is the driving force really of this whole movie Because if it weren't for her prodding him, prodding Peter to do the right thing, he wouldn't have helped those villains in the first place. Yeah, the movie would have been over in 30 minutes. Yeah. When he says it's not my problem, she is having none of it. (laughs) Yeah. She's telling him that you can't just wash your hands off this because, yes, Dr. Strange messed it up. But Peter was the one who approached Strange in the first place. Right. So he does have to take responsibility. Yeah, this is a very high stakes example of clean up your toys. (laughs) And you know that this woman has stepped on a lot of Legos in her time. So fuck this. You're dealing with it, kiddo. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She probably has a soul as strong as Arthur does from Moon. And May is the one who takes Norman in to begin with. She is so compassionate, but at the same time, also a very smart woman who knows sometimes there has to be a line. Yes, and which is why she immediately calls Peter, because she knows this is something to do with him and he needs to be here to deal with it. Yeah, and she is just as brave as Peter is. She knows once... Norman makes the turn. The only way to defuse Goblin is to give him the cure. Yeah. And she tries to do that. Yeah. She's got no powers. Nothing. 
all she's got is yeah. sweat and determination. Mm-hmm. And in the final fight, while Peter's hurt, she just takes a metal rod and she's standing there willing to fight, knowing that she's probably going to die. Yeah. And what's really incredible is that you just know this is more than being a mama bear. She would do this for anybody, not just Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She would help anyone on the street. Yeah. Now, I went into this with my husband buzzing in my ear. You know they're going to kill off May. You know May's going to die. Uh-huh. They're going to kill her off. Babe, prepare yourself. It's going to happen. And I was like, no, no, no. Not happening. What are you talking about? Get out of here. For those of you who've been married as long as I have, you know there is nothing worse in this life than having to admit your spouse is right about something. (laughs) And it's still raw in my throat, let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, when she told me that May dies, I said, okay, I'm done. I'm boycotting. I'm not (laughs) watching this movie. The Marvelous Madams is no more. I can't do this. Marissa Tomei just knocks it out of the park here. She does. Both of them, Rosa Tomei and Tom Holland, his reaction to her death. Again, no melodrama. She just goes. Yeah. And doesn't realize it. The bewilderment on her face is so sad. She's so desperate to stay strong for him in that moment. Yeah, she is. And the adrenaline is running, you know, through all of that. She probably didn't even feel the pain at initially. Yeah. And And it's when she collapses, then she realizes something is seriously wrong, but she still wants to take care of him, wants to protect him. And he is trying to do the same for her. Yeah. And even with all those, you know, great, funny callbacks to the previous movies, none of them compares to this. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. Nobody's laughing there. No, not at all. Finally, they got it right. They got it right and her last bit of wisdom for him, his guiding light through the rest of his life. Yes. And Marissa Tomei earned the right to say that. May, that mm-hmm. May Parker earned that right. And that's why, too, I don't see her death as fridging. She died a warrior's death. She did, but it doesn't make it hurt any less. No, no because in order to be Peter Parker... He had to lose her because she was all he had left. If it had been Uncle Ben alive instead of her, they'd have killed him off too. Well, I mean, Ben Parker doesn't have a good history anyways. Yeah, yeah. It's better that he died before this trilogy started. And the epitaph at her grave, I just couldn't. Oh, God. When you help someone, you help everyone. Oh, she's so right. She is. And actually, that is something that I needed to see at that time. Mm -hmm. I've kind of been struggling with not being able to do enough and help enough. Well, you know, we are living in very challenging times, pandemic, wars, all of that. And I've always wanted to help as much as I can. That's kind of my driving force in life. But I always feel like I can't do enough. So this is something that I needed that I needed to see or needed to hear. Yeah. If we were all like May Parker, the world would be a better place. Yes. We would be living in a utopia. 
And you know what? I think Feast is going to be just fine too between Peter and Happy. Yes. They're going to they're going to make sure her work and legacy continue. Mhm. Feast is her legacy. Peter is her legacy. Yeah. Big time. Oh, it just broke my heart remembering, oh right, Happy doesn't know him. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And credit to John Favreau too. He's really good in this movie. He is and he does play the part of the lovable doofus very well throughout all these movies. Yeah, he's a good sport. Yeah, but in this scene with with Peter standing next to him and they're talking about May, you kind of feel bad for laughing at him for being in love with May. Yeah. The love is real and the pain is real. She was it for him. That's it. Yeah, yeah, she was. All right, so let's move on to some of the big themes present in this movie. So the big one for me in this is one generation failing the next, with the exception of May, because when it comes to one generation failing the next, it's largely an issue of men, because we do live in a patriarchal society. Yes, true. And we have three men who all fail Peter Parker (laughs) in a big way. In this movie. Yeah, and primarily Doctor Strange. Oh, yes. With regard to Strange uh, and the other two, and we'll get into dropping the ball, it reminds me of something that Dumbledore says to Harry. I think in Order of the Phoenix, you can't expect youth to behave with the benefit of experience, to know the lessons of age, but there's no excuse for Mm -hmm. older people to forget what it's like to be young. True. Yes. And I think that is something that is worldwide, across the generations, something that everyone forgets. Everyone forgets what it's like to be young and stupid. Yeah. And part of the reason there is because people don't want to remember because it's painful. It is true. But that's how you grow. Absolutely. You make mistakes, you learn, you grow. If you forget about it and pretend like it never happened, you're doomed to make the same mistakes over and over again. Exactly. And, you know, that's part of the reason this happens in the first place. So we talked about this a little bit in our Doctor Strange episode that he really feels for this kid because Strange knows Mm -hmm. what it's like to be torn between personal desire and greater responsibility. Mm -hmm. Strange sees Peter's nobility. He admires it. You know, he's been on that same journey and knows how hard that was as a grown man. So imagine what it's like for this teenager. Yes. But at the same time, he's in such a rush to treat him like an equal, he forgets to be a mentor. Yes. It's the same problem that Tony had with Peter. And it comes from no not having kids, not spending time around them. Mm-hmm. He should have had a much longer chat with Peter about all of this <laughs> you know before yeah before yeah. taking on some crazy mystical solution true hell i'm 37 years old all right and i'm in the process of trying to sell my house and buy another one and my cousin had a longer chat with me about are you sure this is the right thing to do do you know what you're doing in terms of the taxes and the paperwork and all of that. 
part of me was offended because I feel like there's a certain amount of misogyny involved in it. But he had a longer chat with me with him not being involved at all. Yeah, so it wouldn't have been out of line for Dr. Strange to ask him, well, have you at least emailed the school? You know? Maybe a phone call. Well, actually, that would make sense because, you know. Yeah. Anything. You know? Have you mm-hmm. applied to other schools? You know, which he has. But, you know, there, there are a myriad of ways to deal with this situation other than giant universe-breaking spell. Yeah, you know, worse comes to us an international degree. There you go. So because Strange doesn't have the time stone anymore, that's why he offers the forgetting spell. And yes, he's, he weakens here because he feels for Peter. Hasn't he been through enough? Which is fair. Yeah. I get it. But it's funny because it's actually Strange's growth here as a person and his compassion that create the whole problem. This is a situation that would have been better served by Stephen Strange's coldness and practicality. True. He let himself care too much about Peter's happiness rather than the greater good and his own greater responsibility. Yes, he did. And I also think he severely underestimated the power of this spell. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you, how weird was it seeing Dr. Strange walking around in sweats? It was hilarious. And also the fact that when he floats down the steps and he lands, he slips for a second and he gets catches himself. Yeah, and then there's the mug for fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that kind of fits the tone for his entire arc in this movie. Yeah, yeah, it reminded me of how weird it felt in uh, the Magnuson episode of Sherlock when John finds him at a, a crack house. <laughs> and it's that that super uh-huh. skinny ver- Sherlock version of Cumberbatch and just this t-shirt and ratty sweats. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that this whole thing was done for a reason. They didn't have to have this gag of the snow coming in and Doctor Strange in, in a sweatshirt, you know, yeah. looking not like himself. But it's probably also trying to tell us that in this scenario, Strange has his guard down. He's not Sorcerer Supreme. He's not the great sorcerer at this yeah. time. And he's not the Sorcerer Supreme at all, but still. Yeah, and he's a little pissy about it. He's a little pissy about it. And the fact that he doesn't have that responsibility is making him a little reckless. Now, question, because he gets a little bit of his own medicine here. What do you think is worse, hanging over the Grand Canyon for 12 hours or falling for 30 minutes? (laughs) Which is worse? I'd definitely say hanging for 12 hours. 30 minutes, falling, I'd say you kind of get used to the ride for a bit. Oh no, see, I'd rather hang for 12 hours. If you're hanging, you know, it's painful to be hanging. Your shoulders will pop out. No, but you're suspended by magic. So you're just there. But falling for 30 minutes, that means I'm vomiting for 30 minutes. So (laughs) I would prefer to hang. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So yes, Strange fails Peter big time. But you know what, Mr. Wong? So did you, sir. Because you had the big boy whistle here, buddy. You could have stopped Strange from doing this spell in the first place. Yeah, well, Wong had a lot of things on his mind. 
he was dealing with other stuff. You could see he was in the middle of a move. Yeah, and he's worried because they don't have any liability insurance. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you're the boss, you have to think about all these things. It's a lot. Yeah, but he dropped the ball too. I wouldn't be surprised that Wong was actually heading to meet Shang-Chi at this point. Oh, God, don't reopen that wound, please. (laughs) And uh, the third gentleman who fails, Peter, that we have not mentioned yet is, of course, Mr. Matthew Burdock, who looks so damn good for the brief (laughs) moments we see him in this movie. Well, I'm sure you would have wished to see him in his briefs. Always. Yes, my husband had to physically hold me down in the theater (laughs) when Matt (laughs) appeared in May's kitchen. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike everyone in the theater that poor Charlie Cox himself went to sit in for this movie, my theater lost its mind. Yeah, it's a shame that the one theater he chose was the one with no Daredevil fans. Poor guy. (laughs) Just crickets. So he comes in acting as uh, Peter's attorney. And come on, this is not a coincidence. Matt sought him out. He's been keeping an eye on things. Sure, of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And who knows better about keeping a secret identity and trying to live two lives than Matt? Yeah, true. And that's probably why he sought him out in the first place to help him yeah, out. Along with how stupid people can be. <laughs> I can bet that knowing Matt's history from the Daredevil series, he offered his services for free. Oh, absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think he absolutely should have done more here to help Peter besides uh, just the legal stuff. Well, we don't know what comes of it later on. I would not blame him too much in this scenario or blame him at all because this was a cameo. It was meant to be a cameo. This was a way of telling us, hey, he's back. Yeah, I know what you mean. But like in the greater scheme of things, come on, Matt. No, this is the greater scheme of things. We have to think about the actual real world, the logistics of it. I know. If we get Matt in and have him be a full character, the movie would be five hours long. I know. I know. But it's still there for me. So that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next big theme we have is regarding our villains. So the whole premise here is that Peter is going to work with Norman and Otto to figure out how to fix everyone's issues. And it's Kurt Connors who warns him. And he is right. And who would know better about the dangers of, you know, quote, fixing people. And it's an interesting concept here because once... Norman turns to Goblin and, you know, Octavius, when he's still in evil mode, neither of them thinks they need to be fixed. They don't see themselves as having a problem in any way. Mm -hmm. Now, in the context of this movie, yes, these guys absolutely need to be fixed. But it is allegorical in a way, because it brings up the broader question of what actually needs fixing in people. You know, where's the line? Right. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be just a matter of mental illness, which is what, you know, the goblin personality really represents to us in the real world. But, you know, it used to be back in the day, oh, 
women are starting to think for themselves, well, they need to be fixed. It's lobotomy time or lock Mm -hmm. them up in the asylum or gay people. Same thing. Castration, conversion therapy. They need to be fixed. So it really is a very interesting larger question. It is. And it's something even the villains bring up. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when they are quote unquote fixed, they are grateful for it. Yes. I'm not saying that everyone who is quote unquote fixed in the real world is grateful for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because a lot of the fixes that we have in the real world are pretty horrific. Not just like the old timey ones, but, you know, medications that are around these days, other kinds of therapies that turn people into zombies or have like other horrible side effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes the cure is worse than the disease. Absolutely. And, you know, Norman may have a point. What will schizophrenia look like in 100 years? You know, we'll be probably be seen as barbaric for the way we handled it even now. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, it's no different like with autistic people or dyslexic people. They have abilities that others don't. Mm -hmm. And one can even argue that without mental illness, the world wouldn't have some of its greatest artistic and cultural achievements. Sure, but at the same time, we shouldn't be romanticizing mental illness and suffering in order to achieve artistic greatness. No, not at all. Put it this way. Those achievements also often come out of mental illness, but it's not a requirement. People shouldn't have to suffer for art, but sometimes Mm -hmm. that's how it turns out. A lot of times that's where people with mental illness find solace or find treatment. Yes, absolutely. It can be an escape for them in the same way that working on helping these other villains is an escape for Osborne before he switches to Goblin. Yeah. And historically and culturally, keeping aside the medical aspects of fixing people, a lot of European countries who colonized the rest of the world always thought that they were fixing the locals fixing the natives because they were barbaric right that is also something that should be addressed and in a way peter over here is making a unilateral decision despite everyone's objections to it and that's a very difficult thing to do in and of itself yes it is irrespective of whether it's the right thing or wrong thing to do and does he have the right to do that no but he did it anyways i'm not saying that He shouldn't have done it because he certainly saved their lives. But it wasn't 100% his decision to make. Yeah. And it came at quite a cost. It did. And just like it wasn't Strange's decision to just send them off, you know, pack them off like a parcel. There's so much to be said with the argument about, you know, the individual and compassion versus the greater good. Mm -hmm. Sure. And with Doc Ock's situation, He was so mired in his own pain that he couldn't see a way out. Yeah. And Peter helped him out, despite the fact that Doc didn't want it. Yeah, where we have Norman kind of representing, like you said, DID, Mm -hmm. or even even bipolar disorder, the manic versus depressive side of it. And then we have Doc Ock, who's really embodying depression and probably suicidal tendencies. Right. Yes. 
All right, so lastly, we have the whole concept of fake news and propaganda. What a perfect modern adaptation for J. Jonah Jameson. Absolutely, yes. And he did a great job. I love J.K. Simmons so much. And I also really appreciate how intentionally terrible his mustache and hair pieces are. (laughs) And that's another really subtle thing that Watts does here. So at the beginning of the movie, we see that he is just this pathetic little man in a shitty office. Mm -hmm. And throughout the whole thing, he's never a part of the movie. He always exists outside of everything that's happening. It's very well done. They show the power of his vitriol and his propaganda without ever making him a focal point or giving him any kind of credibility for it. Yeah, he's sort of like an annoying fly around Peter's head. Yeah, and they show the progression because when we see him again, we see that he's majorly upgraded his studio space. He has an actual screen. He's got a really nice studio set up. So we see he's making a lot of money here off Spider-Man. And this is a very cunning man who's good at what he does and shouldn't be underestimated, which also tells us just how many sheep he has listening to him. Yes, absolutely. And the fact that some major media organization picked his show up and gave him the platform to really spread his bullshit. Well, for Fox News, of course. We don't have to guess on that one. (laughs) And he also has managed to get himself his own helicopter and a fleet of cars and all of that. He's making the most of it, irrespective of whether he believes Spider-Man is a good guy or a bad guy. At any point, even if he changes his mind, he's not going to back down. He's going to stay and make his money. Yeah, part of me wanted Jake Gyllenhaal to show up as his character from Nightcrawler in another news van. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> mm-hmm. But not enough people have seen that movie for it to be funny. They would have just been confused. Yeah. Like, Mysterio is alive? Yeah, so this movie ends up being both a mirror to our own society as well as a cautionary tale. Yes. And Watts has done a great job with those larger themes throughout his entire trilogy. Yeah. And as we're watching the movie, we are getting progressively irritated with J. Jonah James. Oh, yes. At least I was. Of course. Yes. And trust me, it's worse uh, for those of us who have been raised by people who would be cheering on uh, Mr. Jameson and watching him every night. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So. That brings us to the end of No Way Home. And we have arrived at Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Yes, that will be releasing soon. So we are recording this on April 4th. We're almost exactly a month out. I will have my ass planted in my chair at 9 a.m. this Wednesday to purchase my tickets for opening night. My husband has taken leave Mm -hmm. that day. We are not around. <laughs> oh, by the way, happy anniversary. Oh, right. <laughs> we completely forgot. Yes. Happy anniversary to you as well, my dear. Two years for us on the air today. I said it again. We're not on the air. Two years for us running this podcast 
today. And happy birthday, Robert Downey Jr. Yes. <laughs> you know, this is a sign of a true marriage. One forgets the anniversary. Yeah, I can attest to that because on my wedding anniversary two months ago, when I said happy anniversary to my husband, he said, oh, yeah, and walked away. <laughs> We've had a discussion about that since. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So, yes. We're scared. We're very nervous. And it's not just because of Sam Raimi. Um, I'm very, very scared because of Sam Raimi. Yes, but it's also because uh, they are scrambling with this movie hard. Yeah, as of like two or three weeks ago, they were still doing reshoots. Yeah, and it was like the second round of reshoots. Not second, more. I think they're like on the fourth or fifth round of reshoots. Yeah. So, and we have no idea why they're doing these reshoots. Is it a story issue? Is it an effects issue? Like, is it voice issue? No idea. Yeah, and generally when something like this is happening with the reshoots and reshoots and reshoots, it means something is wrong. Yeah. Historically speaking. Yeah. So believe it or not, what's giving me comfort right now is thinking about movies like Apocalypse Now that were filled with problem after problem and that were just a nightmare to make, but turned out to be one of you know the greatest movies ever made. Granted, I've only seen the first 20 minutes of it. Couldn't get through it. Not my cup of tea. No, thank you, Mr. Sheen. But... <laughs> uh, it's giving me some comfort at the moment. Well, let's just hope that Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness does not become an apocalypse. Or X-Men apocalypse, because that was garbage. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's some major back and forth going on between the executives and Feige and Sam Raimi and all of that. I don't know. I am nervous. I am very, very worried. Okay, so in No Way Home, we see that Peter was able to control his physical form while outside of his body, mm -hmm. his astral self, and Strange had no idea how he was doing this. Mm -hmm. Do we think this is important? What does it mean? Because why else would they do that? I think it will come to play sometime in the future. It has to, because they really made it a point to focus on that. Yeah, they did. I don't know what is going to come of it, but it will come into play sometime. And uh, Ned's magical future better come into play somewhere too. Yes, yes. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Ned is, one, is going to be the one who saves the day at the end of the world. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but he knows how to work that sling ring. <laughs> yeah, with no training. He was able to create a portal multiple times faster than Strange did when he was learning. Yeah. That's very true. Well, Ned doesn't have a giant ego in the way. True. Is Ned possibly the next Sorcerer Supreme? I don't know. We shall find out. <laughs> well, if in Multiverse of Madness things go completely mad, then sure, Ned might be the next Sorcerer Supreme. So there's a great moment in No Way Home at the end when Max Dillon comes back to himself where uh, Jamie Foxx lists all the reasons he thought Spider-Man would be black. Mm -hmm. And says, there's got to be a black Spider-Man out there somewhere. Yeah. Are we going to see Miles Morales in the MCU? Possibly. That might be Tom Holland's ticket out. 
Maybe, but I don't think he's done. He's going to come back. I mean, this is a guy who said, if I'm still Spider-Man when I'm 30, I've done something wrong. True. But he's also retracted from that later on. Really? Yeah. Okay. I didn't hear about that, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, let's see. I do think he will come back in some way. This is not the end of Tom Holland's Peter Parker. Well, here's the thing, though, because we have a post credit scene where we see Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock. I'm really hoping that this was their way of potentially recasting Venom because those movies are garbage, number one. Two, I'm not a big fan of Tom Hardy to begin with. And three, we simply cannot have three British white men named Tom H for the sake of podcasters everywhere, interviewers everywhere to avoid confusion moving forward. That is just ridiculous. (laughs) I don't think they're going to recast him. If they were going to recast him, they would have done it now or they would have not involved him at all. He's sticking around. I'm holding out hope. (laughs) You hold out hope for that. I'm holding out hope that Tom Holland isn't gone. Well, bit of trivia here, everybody. I discovered on IMDb that Thomas is actually not Tom Hardy's real name. It is his middle name, which he has to go by because his real name is Ed Hardy. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah, couldn't go into Hollywood with that. Kind of taken. No. All right, so this was a long one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, so this is coming out as a bonus episode, everybody, because we had to squeeze it in there somewhere before Multiverse of Madness comes out. Yes, because clearly Marvel does not want us to sleep. Yes, so thanks to all you madams for joining us today. I'm Madam Chris. And I'm Madam Amy. Come back Monday as we continue our Moon Knight series. And along with celebrating our two-year anniversary today, we are also celebrating the launch of our Patreon, everybody. So if you haven't yet, we invite you all to become members of the Sanctum Sanctorum. The link is in the show notes. Come on over and enjoy our very first Marvelish movie episode on Crimson Peak, Amy's favorite movie. Oh, fuck you. (laughs) I say this every time I had crimson tears while I was watching this movie. I genuinely sometimes mistakenly call this movie Crimson Tears. (laughs) She really does. In the meantime, everybody, come chat with us on Twitter and Instagram at Marvel Madams because we might just ask you to be part of our listener roundtable episode for Moon Knight in May. Yes, and those are awesome. You get a chance to meet other fans and talk about all sorts of things about the show, of course. And for more content and a blog, check out our website, themarvelousmadams.com, where Infinity Stones are a girl's best friend. So Tobey Maguire says that he and MJ worked things out. Mary Jane. It's about MJ from... Mary Jane. But my problem with MJ was twofold. It was not just... Mary Jane. God damn it!